0: Good morning, everyone. Today we will be reading from John 7, 37 through 44, and John eight twelve through 20. This can be found in the Pew Bible, page 893, or the following Jesus Bible, page 1149. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these things, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said, The Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And so this is now verse 12 in chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, "'I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life.' So the Pharisees said to him, "'You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true.' Jesus answered, "'Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true.' For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me you would not know my father or you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you have little ones, uh, first grade and under, they
1: can go line up with Miss Brittany for children's worship, and she will guide them across the way. Slow down, son. I want to bonk heads this early. See if this is going to work. I promise you guys I test this before I get here to this point in the day. There we go. All right. It is very, very good to be back this Sunday. uh, We got to spend, uh, not this past six days, but the preceding week in Memphis, uh, which is my hometown, taking the kids to see the family and do fun family stuff. And last Sunday, we worshiped with my grandfather at his church, and after worship, we drove back. Uh, to Louisiana, that long drive down I-55. And as we were, were, were not speeding, but going, all, well, maybe a few miles per hour over, as we were speeding down I-55, we saw a billboard, and in uh, big, all caps, bold, yellow letters, it said, Jesus is the answer to all your problems. So the kids were watching a movie or something, and I kind of harumphed to myself, from my seat, and Megan said, what? And I said, "I, you know, I don't know if I totally agree with that. She said, really? I said, I don't know what they mean by that. There's no context. And so, without knowing context, I don't know what they actually mean by that billboard. I would agree with that statement in some ways, but there are other ways that I I, I, I wouldn't. What do you think they mean by This is what my wife has to put up with on a daily basis. Conveniently, Today's text gets to the heart of those questions. Our reading today is from John chapters 7 and 8, when the people of Israel were were celebrating the Feast of Booths. Last time, two weeks ago, I said that, and some people thought I said the Feast of Booze, like whiskey. No, it's B-O-O-T-H-S, the Feast of Booths. No doubt they drank some wine at the feast, but it was not the Feast of Booze. What was this feast all about? The Feast of Booths happened at the harvest time. So end of September, beginning of October, Israel has reaped all of their summer crops. And all the people of Israel, this was the the biggest festival of the year, all the people of Israel would go on pilgrimage to to Jerusalem, and there they would celebrate the harvest that God had given. This feast was commanded for Israel back in Leviticus chapter 23. 23. All right, Chris, you get to be my clicker today. Sorry, man. He's not even in here. I'll click it. It's fine. I'll stretch. In Leviticus 23, it says, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, their calendar doesn't line up with ours, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to Yahweh. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the Feast of Yahweh seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brooks, and you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths. For seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that when the when I made the people of Israel dwell in booths, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am Yahweh your God. So at the time of the harvest, Israel had six days of feasting and celebration. It really was a big party full of food, song, dance lights, wine, and those six days were bookended on either side by two solemn Sabbath days of rest and worship. But for the first seven of those eight days, the people of Israel camped out, I guess it was seven nights, they camped out in these booths, these tents that were made from all of these different branches. And all of this was a reenactment of Israel in the wilderness, How they lived in tents for a very long time. God had saved them from Israel and they were going to live with them. And in the wilderness, God provided for them. So this was a a kind of a a reenactment, a, a, a corporate reenactment of God's provision for Israel in the wilderness at the harvest time. As God had provided for them then, he had provided for them now. Well, as the feast continued through the generations, other traditions got attached to it. Like, you know, the church hasn't always done an Advent candle or Advent wreath. That got attached to it along the way, right? We didn't always give gifts at Christmas. That was a tradition that got added along the way. So also with with the Feast of Booths, as it was celebrated through the centuries, other traditions got attached to it. And one of them was a tradition of ceremonial water pouring. And one commentator describes it this way. He says, on each of the seven days of the feast, a priest drew water from the pool of Siloam in a golden flagon and brought it in procession to the temple with the joyful sounding of the trumpet. There the water was poured into a bowl beside the altar from which a tube took it to the base of the altar. Now on the seventh day of the feast, which was the great climactic day of the feast, instead of a golden flagon, They would actually fill a golden barrel from the pool of Siloam. And they would take it in procession with great celebration. And there they would place it in the temple. They would dip water from it that day so that they could take water from it on the Sabbath day. So they weren't carrying a a burden through Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Now, where did this water ritual come from? So Israel didn't just come up with this because it sounded cool or fun. Jewish rabbis in the Jewish Mishnah report that the tradition was derived from Isaiah chapter 12. Well, what's Isaiah 12? Isaiah 12 is a text of hope. Isaiah 12 looks forward to that future day when a descendant of King David would come and make all things right, when he would bring justice and reestablish Israel. So consider this the Feast of Booze originally looked back. On God's provision in the past, but it gained a future-looking element. So as God has provided for Israel in the past, so he would provide for them in the future. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Faith looks back on what God has done in the past and expects him to be faithful and expects him to do the same thing in the future. So let's look now at Isaiah chapter 12 Help us get a hold of this water-pouring ritual that would occur at the Feast of Booths. Isaiah 11, this is where the the passage starts, says, "'In that day the root of Jesse, the one who will grow from the the family and the lineage of David, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He will raise a signal for the nations, and he will assemble the banished of Israel.'" And gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord Yahweh is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to Yahweh, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. So Isaiah's prophecy, looked forward to a day when Israel's future king, one descended from David, when he would come to restore Israel and to make all things right. On that future day, Israel would draw water from the well of salvation with great joy. And so at the Feast of Booths, they drew water. They rejoiced and they looked forward in hope to God's future provision of a king who would come to save God's people. So they remembered what God had done in the past, the provision he had had in the past. They celebrated the provision they had in the present. But they looked forward to a day when a king would come who would give them the greatest provision ever. But I want you to imagine the people who made the long journey to Jerusalem for this celebration. They did it year after year after year. And they knew as they went up to Jerusalem that the sights and the sounds would be gripping. The celebration and joy would be over the top. But still in the middle of it all, you find real people like you and me who traveled from far away with their families to participate. And when they arrived and participated in the tent building, in the feasting, the processions and parades and traditions, it's almost like a play, right? They became participants in this reenactment of the past and this imaginative representation of a hopeful future. And what did that do? The Feast of Booths helped the ordinary person to orient their story and their needs in the greater history-spanning story and provision of God. So as they celebrated and participated in, in these events, each individual found their own story. With its challenges and problems, the individual found themselves enveloped and surrounded and defined by these two other events. God's provision for Israel in the past and in the future when God would provide in the final commencement of all things. The individual remembered that Israel's story was their story and truly Israel's story is our story too. This is the purpose of liturgy. This is the purpose of worship. This is the purpose of a church calendar and a lot of the things that we do to remind us that our story is a part of a much broader story, that Israel's story is ours. And so in the great feast each year, people remembered God's past provision in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. They celebrated how God had presently provided for their needs in the harvest and they looked forward to God's future provision of all things made right. But consider this, you've gone to Christmas worship services before, you've gone to Easter parties, you've been a part of celebrations that were loaded with these promises and these remembrances, and when you go, you've even come here this morning for this reenactment, And when we go, we bring with us trouble. We bring with us trials. And the people who came up to this festival were no different. They had real lives and real problems. Some of them went up for a harvest festival when, in fact, their harvest had been poor. They went to celebrate God's provision in the past and in the present, but they felt quite unprovided for. Times were hard. Money was tight. Food was scarce. Others went to the feast to celebrate the day when God would make all things right, but they knew very deeply that things were not right. They knew their own sin, their own brokenness. They carried with them the the, the burden of broken promises, broken relationships, guilt and shame because of bad choices made. Others walked that long road to Jerusalem and it finally gave them them some time to think because they had hard decisions ahead of them for themselves and for their families that were too high and too hard for them. So all these people come with their problems and their challenges, and what do they expect? They expect the familiar liturgy. And when they get to Jerusalem, the, the, the liturgy and the traditions, the rituals, We're there. The water is on the move. The lights are blazing. Celebration is happening. But there was something else this time. In fact, there was someone else. They come expecting the ordinary liturgy and rituals, but instead, Jesus of Nazareth shows up at this feast. And in the middle of it all, on the great day when the golden barrel is being taken in procession to the temple, on that day, Jesus makes some bold, wild statements. And what did he say to them? Look at chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts! Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see what Jesus is doing here? First, he's pointing the events of the feast at himself. The water, the lights, the provision, the celebration. I am greater than all of these. In fact, I am the fulfillment of all these things. The king for whom you are looking, I am here. It is me. So Jesus shows up on the great and climactic day of the feast and he, he makes it all about himself. But his statements do more than that. He's not just applying the, the feast to himself and saying that it's all about him. He's talking to the individuals. He's speaking to their thirst, to their need, to their darkness, to their confusion, to their pain. So they come expecting a familiar story, a familiar ritual, an ancient liturgy. And who do they meet there but Jesus. And with all these people gathered to hear of God's past and future provision, Jesus offers to satisfy the needs of those who will trust and follow him. Jesus says, are you thirsty? Believe in me. And you'll have an unending water within you. Are you wandering in darkness? Follow me. And you'll have the light of life. Whatever your need is, Jesus offers to meet it and to meet that need fully, permanently, forever. And so we're back to the billboard on I-55. Jesus offers to answer all their questions, to be the solution to all their problems. But what does he mean by it? How does he intend to do it? And definitely more importantly for you, Have you experienced it? Has Jesus done this for you? Maybe you came this morning expecting a familiar liturgy, the old story, and some promises made for the future. But you've never met Jesus, and you've never had him meet your deepest needs. You sing the songs. You participate in the liturgy, but it hasn't become real to you and to the burdens that you carry. And so Jesus is offering himself to you in this text today. Listen to Jesus talking to you. Again, verse 37 in chapter 7. Jesus stands up and cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now... This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now jump forward to chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what is this undying spring of water that Jesus offers us? And what is this light of life that he imparts to those who trust and follow him? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one through whom Jesus satisfies our deepest needs. So is the billboard right? Does Jesus offer to solve all your problems, to meet all your needs? Well, yes, but the means by which he does it is the Holy Spirit spirit. Nowhere has Jesus promised to always give you food, to always give you perfect relationships, to always make you happy. Now, he loves to give us good things like that, and often he does, but he has actually promised to give us a gift that is greater than all those things. In fact, the greatest gift, and Jesus says this very explicitly in the Gospel of Luke, In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says this, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if the son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, pay attention. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The gift that He promises to give every one of His children, the the one gift that meets all of our needs and all of our desires, the one gift that you can always count on getting from Him is the Holy Spirit. But what does that gift, that offer entail? How does the Holy Spirit help us? Well, let's speak to those very real physical needs. To the person who comes to the feast, a feast celebrating God's provision, and they are literally hungry, thirsty, impoverished. Or perhaps you've come today, and you're struggling with your health. Your family's finances are in a bind. Or you have some other very physical, tangible challenge. How does the Holy Spirit address that? The Holy Spirit is a greater gift than any physical provision because he not only perseveres us in faith, but he also ensures our eventual resurrection. Now, this might sound like a cop-out, a convenient response for when God doesn't answer our prayers. And you might think, I don't need the Holy Spirit right now. I need to pay my tax bill. I need to be healed. I need a new job. The only way I can respond to those statements is to be very, very painfully direct. You are going to die one day. And some of you will die when all of your physical needs seem to be cared for. You're going to have plenty of food, plenty of money, nice house, even a healthy body. And yet on that day, your body is going to give out. Your heart will stop. You will stop breathing. And on that day, all the physical provision in the world will be of no use to you. So even if God does completely heal you today, and even if he does provide for every physical, physical need that you have today, if he answers all of your prayers exactly how you ask him to, that day is still coming. You will still die. And what do you need on that day? The Holy Spirit. Why? What does he do and how does he help us? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit gets you that day in one piece spiritually. That's what Paul's getting at in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says that the Holy Spirit is a seal and a guarantee of our inheritance in this life. We will all struggle, we will all doubt, we will all suffer, we will all sin. But the Holy Spirit is the one who keeps us believing. He's the one who keeps moving us forward. He is the one who disciplines us and draws us to Jesus. He's the one who keeps us together on the path of following Christ. So the Holy Spirit guides us and disciplines us and encourages us and builds us up and gets us to that day of death. He is like water and light. He refreshes us. He guides us and shows us the path. But second, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the indwelling spirit is the one who assures us that we will be raised from the dead one day. So what confidence do I have that on the day I die, I'm not going to stay dead forever? What confidence do I have that when Jesus comes back, I'm coming out of that grave? The assurance and confidence that I have is this. I can look back in my life and see the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I can see him convicting me of my sin, calling me back to trust Jesus, growing me, challenging me, humbling me, comforting me, feeding me. Again, he's like water and light. Stated in a different way. The Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out so that we have a life worth living. It's interesting how Jesus talks about The water and light in our text. Look again at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, I'm going to take a drink of water, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Where's the water coming from? Heart, right. So it's coming from within, and where's it going? That's right. Thank you very much. Jesus offers something that is internal but has an unending external effect. Likewise, in chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world and then invites people to follow him. So imagine it. If you're walking behind the man who is the light of the world, it kind of makes sense. All right, well, he's the light of the world. He must be beaming bright. So because he has this light shining from him, I can see the road I'm walking on. That's not what Jesus says in the text. Look at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness of light. Why? Because they will have the light of life. He says, if you follow me, you will have the light of life. You will possess it. In other words, the light that Jesus has will become your own light. Again, I think in verse 12, and you could disagree with me, I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit here too. The same spirit that Jesus had is given to Christians, and He is like a never ending spring of water, and He is also a light for us. So, what is Jesus saying at the great feast? He's saying, In the past, God provided for you in the wilderness, He gave you food and booths in which to live. And one day, all of God's people will be reunited, all things will be made right. You're gonna have every need, every need you have is gonna be met on that day. But what about now? Now, I'm offering you provision. Jesus says, if you trust me and if you follow me, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit will not only carry you to your day of death, he will carry you beyond death so that you see that great day of salvation that Isaiah told you about. And more than that, he will transform your life now. So if you trust me and follow me, I will give you the life, That you were made for. The life that deep down you really want. So Jesus doesn't promise to give us everything we want. Or everything we think we need. In the resurrection. Every single need we have will be met. But today. He promises to transform us. And to give us a life worth having. So here's the question. If you were given the choice. Between a comfortable life. And the good life which one would you choose? If you were given the choice between an enjoyable life and a life worthy of emulation, which would you choose? Following Jesus isn't the easy life, but it's the life that you were made for. Following Jesus doesn't mean unabated happiness and freedom from every boundary, but it does mean knowing God. (laughs) having deep joy and living with purpose and intention and eternal value. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does all of this in us. He transforms us from the inside out so that we live life in the light of Christ so that we may walk in the way of Jesus satisfied by Him. So I hope you're asking how can I have that? How can I have this Holy Spirit? And how Can he do this work in me? How do we enjoy the benefits of having the Holy Spirit whom Jesus offers us? Well, first, if you openly profess faith in Jesus, and if you can see evidence of the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, growing your love for God, calling you to repent and obey, then take comfort, you've got him. You have the indwelling presence of the Spirit. All of these things are the work of the Spirit in us. And many Christians think that if they don't see these huge, miraculous, gargantuan changes in their lives, that they might not have the Spirit. And there's some other experience they've got to have. That's a misunderstanding. The Holy Spirit is not a totalitarian dictator in your life. Rather, the Spirit works gently and slowly like a parent. He does discipline us, sometimes jarringly so. He does guide us and challenge us and do powerful works in our lives. But he's more like a slowly flowing river than he is like a hurricane. Now, if you profess faith in Jesus or or you don't, and uh, you're living in unrepentant sin, and you know it's sin, and you don't have any intention or desire to change, if you don't really want to love God or obey his commands, if you don't openly profess faith in Jesus, those are all reasons for concern. You may not be a Christian. You may not have the Holy Spirit. But if you believe in Jesus and you can see these things happening in your life, odds are pretty good that you have the Spirit. So there's no second event or experience that's needed. If you're trusting and following Jesus, you have the Spirit. But that raises the question, how do we engage ...with the Holy Spirit? How do we drink that water? How do we live in that light? There you go. Most evidently and ordinarily... ...the Spirit directs our paths... ...through prayerful contemplation of the Scriptures. The Spirit affirms His direction... ...so we read the Scriptures and we think He's guiding us... ...and then He affirms His direction to us... ...through words of wisdom from other Spirit-filled people. And the Spirit also meets many of our needs... Through those same Spirit-filled people, so the same Holy Spirit that lives in me also lives in you, right? So when I'm considering what the Holy Spirit is showing me, He's been showing me things in Scripture. I read the Scriptures, I'm praying about it, and I think He's showing me a a decision to make or a thing to do, or He's comforting me. Um, What do I do then? I don't live in a in a Holy Spirit vacuum. It's not just me that has the Holy Spirit. So I go to you and I say, this is what I think God's telling me to do. What do you think, Holy Spirit-filled person? Will you confirm and agree that this is indeed what God wants me to do? This is how we embark on life with the Holy Spirit. There's things to be done personally and with other Christians. And let's say you've got a problem. You've got a need. Maybe you've got a physical need or a relational need or you don't know what to do. You've got a hard decision ahead of you. What do you do? You go to the Holy Spirit. You go to the Word. You you, you seek His direction. You talk to other Christians. But sometimes the need is meant to be met through these people. You're lonely. These people are here to be your friend. Come and say, I've been asking God to give me somebody that I can be myself with and I can be encouraged along the way. Would you be that person? Or I have a need financially, emotionally. Can you help me? God lives in his people and meets the needs of his people through us. You can be water. You can be light as the Holy Spirit works through you to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why we need each other. We're not meant to be doing this alone. We're meant to be doing this together. So, as we engage with the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, as we engage with the Holy Spirit in conversation, just living life together, the Holy Spirit ministers to us. He refreshes us and he guides us on the path. And in all of this and more, The Holy Spirit carries us through all the ups and downs of this life, even through death, to eternity. Jesus offered all of this to the people at the festival on that great day. But he offers it to you, too. The billboard is right. Jesus does answer all your questions. He is the solution to all your problems But the means by which he meets our needs is the Holy Spirit. So do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you trust Jesus? Do you follow him? And if you do, are you taking advantage of the benefits of the Holy Spirit that he has given? If not, avail yourself of his never-ending waters. Walk in his light. Drink from the word. Pray, give your concerns to him. Ask your brothers and sisters for the wisdom of God and for the provision of God. Take advantage of the benefits of the Holy Spirit that was given to all who trust and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who perseveres us from the moment we first believe the gospel until the day we meet Jesus. And so, Lord, I want to pray for those who are here, if there is any who has never trusted Christ, that today they would run to you in the middle of all the signs and seals and celebration and joy, that they would run past it all to you, Jesus, and that they would receive the gift of your Holy Spirit. And, Lord, for those who are here who have the Spirit, but have grieved him, have ignored him, and have not taken advantage of these benefits. Holy Spirit, grow their hunger, their thirst. May the darkness around them seem pitch black, that they may come to the waters and drink, that they may come to the light and be illuminated. Holy Spirit, transform them. We trust you. We thank you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.